Up to this point, Paul has written what is pretty much an encouraging letter to a church. I, I, I shared this with you for the last few weeks, and in a lot of ways, this is the most boring of all of the Apostle Paul's letters to the church, uh, simply because he doesn't necessarily address uh, a theological debate or, or an ethical dilemma like, say, in 1 Corinthians. He doesn't, it's not a theological manifesto to answer lots of questions like Colossians or the book of Romans, but instead, it's a word of encouragement that I would pray that someone like the Apostle Paul could write about us in the years to come. To simply say, well done. I see what God's doing in you. Keep it up. So in the first chapter, he encourages them by pointing out the ways in which true, the, like the, the gospel was making true believers out of them. The gospel came and shaped them and came with conviction, being fully convinced of their worthlessness because of their sin and guilt, but also being fully convinced of the amazing and infinite price paid on their behalf by God through His Son, Jesus. It begins to call them to imitate Jesus and call others to imitate Him as well. He then, in chapter 2, Paul begins to explain basically his relationship to the church. And he says, this is what a leader looks like. Someone who basically loves out of these convictions in such a way that they look like a mother who's nursing a baby. Or like a father encouraging a child. He then describes in chapter 3 how much he loves them and wants to reunite with them until verse 1 of chapter 4. We'll pick up today. We'll spend most of our time in verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. But I'm going to read verse 1 through 12 together. And you see, he takes a turn for the rest of the book to apply the doctrine that he's already taught. As is his custom, he says, look, you believe this, so now this is what believing this about who God is will look like. And as he, I think, gives a picture of encouragement and exhortation to this church 2,000 years ago, I think he gives a pretty profound amount of things for us as well. So beginning in verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. As we saw last week, 
The church is made up of followers of Jesus that are growing, the word here, excelling more and more, and then they are hungry for more and more of Jesus. They are striving for holiness, that is literally separateness, and fleeing assimilation into worldliness in the categories of, and we see three in this chapter, covered the first one last week, in the categories of sexuality, work, and their beliefs about death and dying. The second one is the one we will spend our time this morning digging into. A church that is excelling in separateness. Multiple times you saw here, I, I want to urge you, God's will for you ultimately is sanctification. That's a word that we will use that simply means growing in holiness. Well, holification, if you will. A growing in holiness. That's God's will for you. You wonder, well, what, what does God want for me? He wants you to look more and more separate from the world, more and more like him. To take on more and more attributes that he gives to us in Christ and to look less and less like the world. Throwing off the world, putting on Christ. That's God's will for us. And the way that plays out, especially for the Thessalonians, and I would argue just, just as much for us, is the, the places, you, if you want to stand out, if you want to look differently than the world and demand a gospel explanation from your life, you can do so in these three areas. That is, the way we relate to human sexuality, intimacy between men and women how we believe it has a cause, a purpose, a container, a context. And secondly, as we saw in verse 9 through 12, in the way that we work as an overflow of our love. Next week, we'll look at that last bit here, that the way we can stand apart from the world is the way that we address death and dying. Remember, the, whole, the word holy simply means separate. And he even repeats it. God has not called you for impurity, but God has called you what? In holiness. In separateness. Like God is. And if you want to look separate from the world, distinct such that people will look at you and know something is different. This person does not fit in. And this ought to be natural for most of you. If you're born probably since 1950, I would argue you already think you're kind of a snowflake. Like you walk into a room and you immediately, uh, you can laugh. You walk into a room and your first thought is, I don't fit in. And it's not because of humility. It's because of pride. You're like, I'm, I'm distinct. I am, no one knows how, what it's like to be me. I mean, there are billions of us on the world, but I'm, I, I'm this, you already know what this feels like. And what I want to do is take that instinct in you, hold it captive and show you that there's a way in which God through the work of Christ, calls us to feel that way in all of life. To go, I don't really belong here. I have a purpose that is above. I have a citizenship that is elsewhere. I'm just passing through. I'm a missionary in a foreign territory. That's what it looks like to live separately. So beginning in verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is powerful for us. He gives us four different things 
as we begin a, to be a people that is excelling in separateness, specifically in the area of love and work, he connects the dots. We love one another more and more. We lead a quiet life, mind our own business, and we work with our own hands. Notice the connection he makes there. He, he connects the love that we have for others and the work that we do in the world. He connects the work that we do in the world to ultimately our love for others. Now this is interesting, because this is where you'll say, like, you mean, you mean he had to go out of his way to write? To tell these people that they ought to work hard? Well, in some sense, no. If you caught that one refrain that works throughout this entire chapter, did you hear him calling back? You remember, we taught you. This shouldn't surprise you, right? He says regularly, like, you remember as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God. We saw this in verse 1 last week. Keep doing this. You know what instructions we gave you in verse 2. And now he says, you don't need anyone to write to you about this. You've already been taught by God. So in that sense, no. Like, does he need to write and, and tell these people to unpack these thoughts? No. In fact, it'd probably be better for us to do so. So remember last week we saw, he says, look different in the area of human sexuality. Have a distinct Christ-likeness in the way you understand how you relate sexually. And we tried to, I hope, walk through a biblical picture of that. He, he doesn't give us a manifesto of that. And instead, he says, flee from sexual immorality. So to flee from that, that means we have to have another picture of what, what is good and what is right. So we tried to unpack that last week. So in this case, when he says you ought to love and you ought to work in a certain way, distinct from the world, that testifies to outsiders about the love of God in Jesus Christ, then we kind of have to zoom out and understand them. He's already given these kinds of instructions. In fact, this is what Jesus said, right? Go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit. And what did he say? And then teaching them to obey. We don't like that part, right? Make disciples, teach them to obey. So uh, this, this, is right, this is right in line with what the disciples would have already been doing. Look, we already taught you because we knew this is how it starts. We're teaching you. Jesus has commanded us to do this. And Paul is saying, look, Jesus is coming back very soon. And so here are some essential things that you ought to do. Since Jesus is coming back, you ought to love one another more. You ought to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your own hands. Here's where I think we can find a very radical counterculture when we let this really set in. When we let the gospel shape the way we love and the way that we work. I think you'll find this to be true. Since our sovereign God is never in a state of panic, then God's people who reflect God's character shouldn't either. Four things. Love each other more, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands. And since our sovereign God doesn't panic, neither should be the people, neither should the people who testify to his character. So what we've got to do is got to dig into a biblical picture of love and a biblical picture of work. He says, mind your holiness in your love and work. Holiness in and through your work. Now this is interesting. Now, how, how do I stand up here and tell a bunch of people in Sioux Falls that they ought to work, right? Uh, the majority of you live here because of work. The majority of you are here because of work. 
And so this is going to seem inter- like I, I have to push on some of your preconceived ideas because you're like, well, I moved here for work. I already know everything about work. And I want to push on it. The, the Bible gives us a more robust picture of love and work that, that reflects the character and nature of God. And so in some sense, some of you need to rest. You don't need to work. But your need for rest is probably because what you believe about work and the way that functionally plays out on a day-to-day basis isn't healthy, isn't biblical, and isn't godly. My hope is that this is a topic we address on a regular basis. In fact, if you and I have ever met for lunch or sat down, I'd bet a large sum of money we talked about work. It involves teasing out the implications of the gospel in your work. This is what good conversations ought to be. And we'll define the terms, I think, in a certain way that I think will be helpful. I want to encourage you, there's an essay called Why Work? And it's written by uh, an essayist of the 20th century named Dorothy Sayers. I'll quote it extensively in a moment here, but you do some work on Google, you'll find it. It's called Why Work? by Dorothy Sayers. And she means to recover a biblical view of work. Indeed, many of you, because you don't have a biblical view of work, you are dying in your work. Work is draining the life out of you. And this is why. If I could summarize her and and maybe give a biblical basis for this. The modern doctrine of work is you work to make a living. The biblical doctrine of work is that work is living. To bifurcate work and life is is to, to do something that separates us from the character and nature of God. It's kind of like separating your life from sleep, right? If you were like, no, no, sleep isn't important. Sleep is just a thing I have to do to actually live my life, right? And some of you have bought into that, and that's why you can't sleep, and your sleep habits are erratic and terrible, and you're asleep when everyone else in the world is awake. You hate things like daylight savings times because it messes with your bad doctrine of sleep, right? And so it, the minute you think like, no, no, here's life over here, but sleep is over here, right? And, and Picture anything, like, here's my life, and, and here's work, right? Here's, my, here's the important parts of my life, and then over here is, is my family, right? Anytime you separate yourself from a thing that you, as an embodied soul, participate in, you're, you're doing violence and harm to your sense of self. You're harming the image of God. And a biblical doctrine of work says work is part of being alive. Unfortunately, as it stands... Work, as we typically see it now, is something we do to make a living. That is, work is the thing we do so that we can actually do the thing we want to do. I want to encourage you, that that will rob you of joy. Sayers defines it this way, work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. Because every good endeavor that we might jump into here ultimately reflects the character and image of God. Every single vocation, if you dig deep enough, reflects the character and image of God if done rightly. Anything. Pick the vocation, right? Some of you are in financial services, okay? You work for a bank, right? A bank. What's the purpose of a bank? A purpose of a bank is that it, it, it's going to do business by providing security for your money, right? You give them the money, they're going to make a little money off of it, and they're going to provide you with safety and security. They're going to grant you the security. Like, I'm going to give you the money, right? It's going to be safe with us. We're a bank. We have a big vault, right? This is, this is, this is, we're going to keep it safe. Have you ever, I don't know if you've thought of this, 
Have you ever thought of who invented the concept of security? Who likes to hold things together safely? Who thought that up? Get it? God has created, like this, even a bank, even, I mean, like, some of you like banks are evil, too big to fail. Okay, maybe, but underneath, they're providing a service that is meant to give human beings the ability to flourish by providing something God has already granted us. Every, everyone, think of the most vile possible profession, and under the surface, the reason why it exists is because they're providing something to the world that God ultimately wants to grant us in Christ. Even something vile like prostitution. What keeps that running? People's hunger for pleasure. People's hunger for companionship and acceptance. Again, have you ever thought, who invented, who invented pleasure? Who thought it up? Who thought of companionship and comfort? Right? You get what I'm saying? Like this, these are powerful doctrinal theological premises that will inform the way we work. Because under the surface of every single sector of the economy is something that reflects the character and nature of God. Every single one. Even if it's used to, even if you take that, that thing and corrupt it and make it awful, if you dig, out, if you dig down underneath it, un- underneath it, there's something that people are doing to serve people and allow them to flourish. Who, again, who thought that up? Who thought of helping human beings to flourish? Who might, if you will, set them on a course to be fruitful and to multiply? Get it? And so this is, I want you to have a radically reoriented view of work. Work is not like the thing you do to make a living. It's part of living. It is part of God's trajectory for human beings in the world to reflect his image to everyone. What you do, if done rightly, reflects the character and nature of God. You're you're testifying to something about who God is. Who ultimately graciously expresses his creative energy in the service of others, right? Who thought that up? Now what happens is this, in our particular setting, we, we've set aside one of two things. And, and I'll kind of lay them out for you and then and we'll try to like piece them together in those four particular areas in the text and then apply, apply them to the way we work or think about work. And the, the difficulty is you'll find yourself in one of two ca- categories, right? Uh, you'll either land on the side of overvaluing work to the point where you despise it, you hate it, you don't want to do it, or you'll overvalue work to the point where it is your life. You find your identity in it, and apart from it, you, you don't know what to do with yourself. And here's how this plays out, right? For, for this category over here, you, like, you hate work. You don't see the value in it. You don't really think that you're reflecting the character and nature of God. Right now, you are nauseous because you just got a few days off, and it was your real life. Like the last few days of you not working, that was life for you. You're like, this is how I was meant to exist, right? You've been walking around, you know, gluttonizing with turkey and laying around and doing nothing. This is, this is it. This is what I was meant to do. I was meant to do this forever, right? And now, as the, right even now as I say this, you're like, I have to go to work tomorrow. I have to go to work tomorrow. I have to go to work tomorrow. And you're freaking out. And you don't want to because right now you're living, Tomorrow or whenever work starts back up for you, again, no offense to those of us who work through the holidays. I love you just as well. Apply it to a different day, okay? But like for, for the, like for the, I work weekends. Join the club, right? I mean, it happens. 
So like, so tomorrow when work or whenever work starts back up, there's something in you that's like, you're like, oh, I can't, I don't, I don't want to do this. You're sick. Whereas the rest of you who find your identity in, the, in your work, this whole last week has been torture. In fact, you probably just kept working. You just kept on emailing right through Thanksgiving dinner. Everyone else was loving and being thankful for the world, and you were like, I'm important, I'm a big deal, don't have time to be thankful, got to be productive. And you, you, you haven't known what to do. Like, you don't know how to vacation, right? You ruin everyone's vacation because you just, you don't know how to rest. You're that guy. Because ultimately, you think your life is in your work. And these are both, I want to encourage you, sinful aberrations. These are both a rebellion against God's good nature. These are, and, and so the, the goal here isn't to either, for this group of people, say, work harder. Or this group of people say, take a vacation. The goal here is that you would repent. And you would trust in the finished work of God. Because those of us who understand that God has completed all that is necessary for life, holiness, joy in this life and the next, we see work differently. Ultimately, if you think, if you think God hasn't finished everything that's satisfactory to give you joy and contentment, then you will strangle your own job to get that satisfaction and contentment. And as you already know, or maybe you're already starting to sense, it won't give it to you. So we have to close the gap between the picture of work is making a living, right? It's saving up the money to do what you really want, right? You live for Friday or the weekend, or work is my life. If I'm not productive, or if I'm not good at this, then I'm, I'm a failure. And, and there's an interesting thing that, that Sayers puts here together. And I want to encourage you to read it with me. It says, she goes, how can anyone, remember she's, she's addressing this disconnect between like God creating us to work versus the modern notion of like, Oh, I don't know. Like, again, you, live to make, you, you work to make a living. She says, how can anyone remain interested in a religion, pointing out what the church and what, the, what our doctrine of work really is, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? You get that? Right? Like, like, you get together on a Sunday and we're like, no, Jesus is, Jesus is the real thing, the thing you've been doing all week long. It's beneath. It's beneath what you've been doing all week. She's like, that gap isn't healthy. Why would anyone be compelled by it? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. That didn't blow anyone else's mind but mine. Okay, the church's approach, this ought to resonate. Have you, not, have you like got this sentiment, right? Like, in the end, you get together on a Sunday morning and I tell you, don't do bad stuff. Stop it. And, and so the church's approach is to an intelligent carpenter is usually just exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly on the leisure hours and make sure you come to church on Sundays. Have you lived in this separated world? Have you lived in this? You know what this is like? Living two separate identities? This messes up your ability to worship. For those of you who think that work is ultimately your identity, you, you, you hate it. You hate it when we start singing songs to Jesus. You are unable to celebrate the goodness of God in song because in your own heart, you know what's really important is what you do the rest of the week. And maybe for the rest of you, right? You, you, you hate what you do the rest of the week. You're like, this is the only time where I can just be who God created me to be and worship and respond to him, right? And both of those are an aberration. 
They, they split the soul and the body. She says what the church should be telling him, that is, remember, this is the intelligent carpenter. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. It's not our purpose on a Sunday, for example, to say, no, this is what life is like. This is how we ought to live. But instead, we say on a Sunday, this is an extension of all of your life. You glorify Jesus in song and submitting to the scripture and making things that don't break. Because you reflect, remember, underneath that sector of the economy, you reflect the character and nature of God. And underneath that, if you make things that are terrible, if you serve people in a way that's unloving, you do not look like God. And the most important thing that we do in worship is we rightly orient ourselves to the Creator, and then we're set off into the world to look like Him. This is powerful. She summarizes even the way that Jesus exalts the picture of work, rather than bifurcating it into one ministry and one work. She says, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. Did you get that? I promise you, Jesus never made anything that was terrible. Jesus worked with his hands. He was a carpenter. And I promise you, whatever he made was great. Because no one would trust that he was the, the means by which all things are held together that have come into being as the Gospel of John and the book of Colossians tell us. No one would believe that if he was just terrible at anything that he did. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. You feel that? Do you feel that even in, even in the tasks you have? Like you're doing something, but it, it's like something about me is split. I'm, I'm, I'm having to be disintegrated to do this. Every time you do something poorly, this, this comes out. You get it? So we, we address, I hope in this text, he, he's saying, put the two together. Put the two together. In the end, work is an expression of love. Work is an expression of love. Don't miss that. The work of Jesus as a carpenter testified to his ability to create heaven and earth. That's why, beginning in verse 9, he says, and he connects two thoughts. Notice they're together, right? He doesn't say, love your brother, pause, stop, now work hard. Did you catch that? He says, love your brother, as you are working hard, in your working and serving, in the way that you are living a quiet life, in the way that you are working with your hands, minding your own business, these things work together. Work is an expression of love. God's work is an expression of love, right? This shouldn't surprise you. In the end, God gives us security, comfort, service, all the things that industries and services alike provide through products or services, all these things God created for us. Now, this is where it will push you. This means that if you are failing at work, you are actually failing to love others. And if you are failing to love others, you are actually failing at work. Don't do what our culture wants to do and to separate the two. If you're not a good and loving worker, you're not 
faithfully communicating the character and nature of God. So let's run through those four things in the text. It says, now concerning brotherly love, literally Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Now concerning Philadelphia, brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourself have been taught by God. This is the only place where this word shows up. Theodidactos, like God taught. You are God-taught people. I don't need to tell you about love. God has taught you this. For indeed, that's what you're doing. And we saw in chapter one, as he makes a call back here, everyone in Macedonia knew about it, right? Everyone was raving about your faith has, and your love for others is known throughout all the churches of Macedonia. And God is the one who taught you that. Well, where do we get that? Romans chapter five, verse five says it this way. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me get that. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In a way, it's a callback to John chapter 6, that those who love God as the fulfillment of, prof- uh, of the prophecy will also be taught by God. And this picture, I think, draws out a couple different things. God's love is poured into the hearts of people through the Holy Spirit. God does this. God imparts himself as he redeems and saves people. John chapter 2 puts it this way. Whoever says... He is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So there's this picture that to be in the light as Jesus is light, to be have our eyes wide open to who God is and what he's doing in the world, specifically in the work of Jesus, will naturally, as Romans 5 tells us, result in the love of others. And if you fail to love, you're actually failing to believe. And the truth, it tells us, is not in you. You're actually being driven by the darkness. The very next chapter, to, to hammer the point down, in verse 13, he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that over here, the world is driven by hate, animosity, competitiveness. Don't be surprised by that. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? How do we know that we are born again, that we have new life? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. that He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now that word used in Verse 9 there, we, we know that you have no problem the, with brotherly love. You ought to continue to love one another at the end of verse 9. That's that word agape. It's the, the godly love, the perfect selfless love. Now, I want to hopefully define this every time we come across it in the Bible. We have a broken definition of love, okay? And I've shared this with you on a regular basis. It would lead me to say something like, I love cows, right? Love cows. And by I love cows, what I really mean is I'm cool with, you Google this if you're ready for this, but uh, I'm cool with what's called animal husbandry, okay? And, uh, and I'm cool with that so that they can take a living being like a cow, lock him up for its entire life, basically a form of trafficking and slavery uh, in which they will be forced to do everything that they do until they're fat enough to be shot in the back of the head, sliced up and served on a plate for me to eat. When I say I love cows, that's what I really mean. I mean, I love them so much that I'm willing for them to be slaughtered on my behalf. And that's what I mean by that. What I mean is I really just enjoy their benefit. 
In fact, I'm willing to subjugate them and do all sorts of awful things to them because I enjoy their benefits so much. Unfortunately, that very selfish, self-centered, heartless picture of, big quotes here, love, is what most people really mean when they look at someone else and say, I love you. I really just enjoy your benefits. I really just like the way you make me feel. And friend, agape, this brother, I mean, this kind of love that God gives to save you. Did you catch that? We know. How do we know love? How do we understand this kind of love? Is it by the benefit that God derived from us? Is it because we're so awesome and God's really excited to have us on our team? No. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. You hear that giving love, sacrificial love? I mean, after all, if I really loved cows, I would lay down my life to save them from suffering, right? If I really loved cows, I would do anything in my power so that they're no longer harmed, right? But I'm not going to do that. I enjoy their benefit too much. And I'm willing. Don't get me wrong, I believe the Bible gives us a picture of dominion, a humane dominion over the world to subject it. Again, that's work. Cultivate it so that it benefits human flourishing. Don't come at me, don't email me on that one. If it's not a cow for you, maybe it's a Again, a beautiful vine-ripened organic tomato, right? Either way, you killed it. Oh, you didn't pluck it, but you ate it. You fed on its dead corpse, yeah. And you're okay with it. You're okay with it. Because in the end, you don't love it. You're not going to die for it, but you are going to enjoy its benefits. And that's not love. God's love. You saw it this, this morning as we opened was demonstrated to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died in our place. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He gave. This is a picture of love. And work is an expression of love. Work ultimately is an expression of giving. And if you don't understand God's giving and selfless love, then you won't understand what it means to selflessly love and work. In the end, you'll just be serving yourself. You can call it love, but it's not. I see this in relationships all the time. People are like, well, we fell out of love. No. You just stopped seeing the benefit. Love gives. Love sends. He says, you know this. How do you know this? God taught you. I love this. This is something I, I get excited about, this, this concept that God teaches you something. Uh, as a pastor, I get a chance to lead people to imitate me as I imitate Jesus, and I hear people say things, and a lot of times I hear people say things quoting the Bible, and, and I hear myself, and they're kind of like quoting me, and, the, and in the end, it's a good thing, I'm like, that's a, I'm, I'm glad, hopefully wielding influence well, and you hear someone say, well, you know, that's, I can see where he got that, right, that came from so-and-so, I know who he's quoting there. You know what really gets me excited? When I hear somebody quote something or say something powerful that I know I didn't teach them. And I go, that was God taught. I didn't teach them that. I didn't teach them that. That was them opening the Bible and the Holy Spirit imparting words to them. That, that's, that's exciting. Because that's the stuff that lasts, right? That's the stuff that lasts forever. And he's saying, that's what you have. You know that God has taught you to love. How do you know that? Because that's what God is like. God is loved in that he gave to the people who didn't merit his love. He gave his son, even though they didn't deserve it. Verse 10, it says, for that indeed is what you're doing. 
to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you now to do it more and more. Evidently, there was a way in which the Thessalonians were living is that they were so excited about Jesus coming back that they started to neglect certain responsibilities. We'll see this for the rest of uh, even 2 Thessalonians. Some of them stopped working. And he says, look, if you're not going to work, you don't get to eat. And he, apparently, the way that they were celebrating or anticipating Christ's return was becoming a burden on others. And they stopped loving and caring for others, and they just kind of created a holy clique. And they got together and called themselves Christians, but had no real love for outsiders, and had no real care, and they were a burden on the people around them. Get it? You've probably seen this. You know what this looks like. But we urge you, love more and more. And then he says something. It connects the love of God and our love given by God in Christ to the work. So then, aspire to live quietly. So we saw four things, remember? Love more, love more, lead a quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands. And so something powerful happens here. He says, look, it, it, there's a period there, but it isn't the end of the thought. I, I don't know if you notice, the, the thoughts are actually connected, but we urge you to do this more and more. Do what? Love more and more. And in, in light of this love, loving more and more, growing and abounding in love, you're going to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work with your hands. It's a really strange rhetorical thing he's doing. He's saying, be ambitious about being quiet. Work really, really hard. Did you catch that? Aspire to live. Aspire this, this picture of ambition. Make it your ambition to be quiet. It just let that rattle around in the way that that kind of pushes back on our typical concept of what ambition really is. Let that just rattle around. Aspire to live. Nextly, it says, live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your own hands. A quiet life. Ask yourself this. Do you love your work enough to do it without any recognition? Do you love it enough to just do it for the sake of serving people? Or do you use words like burned out when things don't turn out your way? A quiet life says, look, no fuss, no complaining, just work as an expression of love. I'm going to do this whether you thank me or not. The thankless kind of love, the love that doesn't demand recognition. I think what you'll find is this. When we think about if ultimately love's an expression of work, then I think what you'll find is this. As we connect this love to working quietly, faithfully with our own hands, he says, I think, I think we can connect this. The way you work ought to reflect a deeper motivation on a paycheck. The way you work ought to show you love something more than just the benefit. That's what quietness is, Right? The way you work ought to reflect it. Don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Be pleased that the Father has put things into your hands to do. This means you don't give a half-hearted effort. You don't cut corners. You give God your all by giving your all to your job. And here's what I would push on you. If you're the loud one, like, I'm better than this job. I'm entitled to this. I'm, I, I should get promoted. It's probably causing you to be lazy, probably cutting corners, probably not doing a very good job. And I would push this on you. You're not ready for a new job until you stop slacking at your current one. 
Stop complaining about needing a raise or a promotion. Jesus says if you're going to be faithful and be entrusted to be faithful with large things, you're going to be faithful with small things. How about you be obedient to the last thing God told you to do? Stop running to the next. You're probably hiding your failure in the last one anyway. And when we cut corners, when we don't put our whole heart into it, we don't really believe that we're reflecting the character and nature of God to serve and to bless people. Why? Where does that hit? Where, where does that ultimately hit? I don't know if you caught the very end. He says, the way that you work quietly, you mind your own affairs. Now, now be careful. A lot of people will use this. The majority of the time when someone says, mind your own business, uh, they're actually trying to hide sin. I don't know. Just beware. It's very rare that someone uses this as, like a, as a way to cover up blessing and faithfulness. Did you catch that? He's like, look, mind your own business. As in like, just be faithful. Most people when they say mind your own business, they're saying, don't look at my sin. So because that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying ignore sin. He's saying quit, quit demanding recognition for what God just does thanklessly. Just do it. You're reflecting God's character, especially when, when it's thankless. As a result then, it says, that you will walk properly before outsiders in verse 12 and then be dependent upon no one. So this is pretty powerful. There's a benefit here. Work, ultimately, as we see here, is a primary means of mission. Work is a primary means of mission. In the end, when people see the way you work, they, it ought to demand a gospel explanation. People ought to wonder, why are you so faithful? Why don't you do all the awful, underhanded things like everyone else does? And the reason is because the underlying foundation of all our evangelism is the credibility of our living. And if you're not a credible, trustworthy, faithful worker, no one cares about what you believe. No one cares who you sing to on a Sunday morning. No one cares. You look like everyone else. And here, this is powerful. We live in an agitated, upset, disoriented, messed up world. So why would agitated, upset, disoriented Christians have anything to offer it? If you're just as stressed out and freaking out about your job like everyone else, no one cares what you believe. No one cares. Ask yourself this question. What's the thing that everyone in your job's always freaking out about? What's the thing in your job that everyone's worried about? You want to have an opportunity to give a testimony, to give an account, a reason for the hope that's within you in Jesus Christ. Don't freak out about that thing. Be the one person in your context that isn't freaking out about the thing everyone else is worried about. Pick that, whatever it is. I don't know where, like, everyone's, everyone's after this. Be the one person who doesn't care. Be the one person who's like, man, I have everything I need handed to me in Jesus Christ. The fact that I get to work is great. That'll be a powerful testimony. The way I would judge it, the way if you really know if your work is an expression of love is this. When you look at your city, your job, ask yourself, are you taking something or giving it? When you look at, I, I came to Sioux Falls to work, are you sucking the life out of Sioux Falls to get a job? Or will Sioux Falls be better off now that you're here? Or will Sioux Falls be better off when you leave? Think about it. I mean, if you really are reflecting the character and nature of God, then it will be visible in the way that we work as an expression of love. Do you want to serve and benefit the city? Do you want to serve and benefit your workspace? Then ultimately, the underlying foundation for why you work has to be different than everyone else's. 
has to be different. Work is an expression of love. Functionally, you shouldn't do a job then unless it really helps other people. There's two kind of categories. You're, you're creatively working to serve others, but you're also trying to find a fit for your, like, the way that God has equipped you. This doesn't always pan out perfect. We live in a broken, fallen world. Sometimes you will have a task that you're not really sure if it's really serving and beneficial to the world, and you're not really sure if it really fits your, like, what you're able to do well. Okay, that's, that's going to be difficult. But I would push on that. The reason you probably, and this is, some of you right now are hearing me say, go get another job. <laughs> and again, I want to say, no, uh, be faithful for what the job you have. Uh, show that you can reflect the character and nature of God in this job. Otherwise, you're just going to take your disobedience to some other workspace, okay? Keep the carnage low. I'm not saying go get another job. What I am saying is you may have to, I, I think you may have to live with the consequences of your sin in this area. As you're coming to realize that your job is a gift that reflects the character and nature of God, um, you're going to have to live with some consequences. Because you might, if, I, if, I, if I'm guessing, you might have taken your current job uh, not on godly sanctified motives, <laughs> Maybe. It might be possible that you took that job at a self-serving, with a self-serving attitude. And if so, it, just recognize you're going to suffer a little bit here. It's going to be a while before either your heart is shaped in such a way that, that you begin to like throw off the sinful unbelief that, that ultimately this work is over here and my life and God's over here. As you throw that off, it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to probably re repent even to your coworkers. One of the most radical things you could do is to go to your job or people and say, hey, I've been using you. I don't really want to serve you. I don't really love you. I just, I just, I'm here for my own benefit. Again, <laughs> excelling in separateness. You want to look different, be that guy. Be that woman. Be that person who goes like, look, I've been using you in this area, but I'm now seeing that I haven't seen this job or my coworkers rightly. Will you forgive me for this? Why are you asking that? I'm glad you asked. I've got, I've got, I, have, I have a life that now demands a response. Ultimately, the, the foundation for our, our testimony is in the credibility of our work and living. So you might have to be in a job right now for a while that you just kind of endure the consequences of unbelief in this area, either, either until possibly God opens up a door. When you're faithful this, you'll be faithful in some other area. I mean, we live in a, again, we live in a broken, fallen world. I don't believe God drops jobs out of the sky like unicorns, Okay. He doesn't drop spouses. He doesn't drop jobs. He doesn't, these aren't, these, this is not how God works, okay? He drops Jesus, and then everything else falls into place. So, so don't expect the new job to be your Jesus here. Instead, be faithful with what you have, and then begin as you wrestle with the consequences of taking that job out of unbelief to hurt a little while before you see fruit in this area. And this is what I think you'll find. Christians who are characterized by love, who lead quiet, peaceful, tranquil, tranquil lives, who mind their own business with great care, and who faithfully discharge their duties as they were, are going to show a lifestyle to a world that may make Christianity attractive. We dignify work. That last little phrase, did you catch that? He says, work with your hands. Um, what he's doing is he's trying to exalt and dignify work. So the Greeks in this particular culture didn't value work. In fact, the people who were elite didn't work anymore. They're the people who got in charge of workers and didn't work any longer. And they thought, like, success was you no longer work. Work was a debasement. And that's important because a lot of the Christians at the particular time would have been slaves. And so he's saying, look, there is no work that is particularly great 
all good work serves others in the way that God's own character serves the world. And so he's trying to elevate the picture of labor. Now, this is important for us in the recent years. Uh, capital and our own current in our own current in, in, uh, economy, capital is now worth more than labor. That is to say, it's more profitable in America right now to own than it is to work. Now, I'm not here to fill out all of the financial and economic implications of that, but I am here to say this. this here's something he's trying to do. While the world says it's more profitable to own, he says, work with your hands. You serve. You stop looking down on people because of what you think they do or or their job. Instead, you start serving. Testify to a greater loyalty. In the end, the way that we work is a testimony to what we believe about God's work. When you believe that God's work is ultimately finished for you in Christ, it will allow you to live and work in a quiet and peaceful, not agitated and upset, disoriented way. And so here's what this happens. When we start to like merge these, we start to separate and understand them in their right places. So one of the best things I can tell some of you right now is that you need to celebrate Sabbath. That's one of the big ten. Thou shalt. Remember those? We remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That doesn't mean you just don't work. It means you devote an entire day to simply resting in God's finished work. You say, today, today I'm not going to work. I'm not going to work. I'm not, why? Why, because I'm tired? No, maybe, that might be it. But instead, you're just saying, I'm going to devote this day to be undistracted. I'm going to find my comfort and rest in his finished work. The work will be waiting for me at the end of this day. I can go right back to it. But what you'll find is that when you're disobedient in this area, when you don't repent of unbelief in this area, that God, can you trust God with a day? And if you can't, then when you repent of this area, you'll start to see a separateness. Right now, some of you are feeling the effects of the ways these things have encroached upon one another. And here's what happens. I know for some of you, you can't, you can't tell the difference between rest and work. They've blurred together. And now your work is restless, and your rest is being like encroached upon by work. You know what this feels like? You felt this? It's just like it drags on. You don't know when there's a break. You don't ever stop and say, it's enough, it's finished, God's done the work. And so just realize that there's a place here where we can, we can testify to a greater peace, a greater quietness, because we know that ultimately God has finished all the work. Don't miss this. Your faithful hard work is a testimony to our Lord. Your desire to always be hungry for the next big thing is hindering your ability to make disciples. People who are faithful in the small things over a period of time, they notice small things. People who are always off to the back, next big thing, they miss small things and they think small, think small of people. People who are faithful to small things realize there are no small people. They notice people. People dreaming beyond their current circumstances, they don't notice people. They don't care about them. They don't love them. They just use them to get where they want to go. Don't miss this. The way that you faithfully work is a testimony to the Lord our God. Don't miss the good news here. Every single step of God's work in the world, he got his hands dirty. In the creation, God made people out of dirt. In the incarnation, he 
came to be goodness and righteousness on their behalf, taking their sin upon them. And in the resurrection, he took on a new glorified body. Don't miss this. Every move that God makes in the Bible is a perfect and holy and righteous God getting his hands dirty on behalf of people he loves. His work is an expression of his love. You may hate your job, but your bad work really just testifies that you hope in something greater than your job, maybe a greater job, but your faithfulness could testify that your hope is in something better, that you have a contentment. And we hold this truth. Jesus is coming back, and we are commanded to be loving and faithful in the meantime. How we wait, how we serve, testifies to Jesus. The next time you look at your job and you think, this is beneath me, I want you to hear this good news. Jesus Christ, look at the cursed and fallen and filthy sin of the world, and instead of saying, that's beneath me, he said, I'm going to take that on myself to demonstrate something greater, to accomplish something for the good of all people forever. And when you see that, when you recognize that, it transforms your understanding of the task that God has placed in your hands. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy towards us. Uh, we, we confess that on a regular basis, uh, our lives do not testify to the finished work of your son, but instead our lives regularly testify to how much joy we get out on our own, own unfinished work. So for those in this room, they're having a hard time seeing that God could love them so much that he would come and take on the labor of carrying our sins to the cross. Would you begin to open their eyes to that? Would you begin to maybe pry at their own hearts the reason they're restless in the world? and especially restless in their own work, is because they don't really know that the work that needs to be done has been finished by Jesus. Would you begin to let them see that? For some in this room, maybe they wouldn't call themselves a believers. Thank you for bringing them here, God. Would you now open their eyes, grant them the gift of faith to trust and place all of their hope, not in their own work, but in Christ's work on their behalf. Grant them joy in knowing there's nothing that needs to be added. They don't have to work to appease you. All the work to please you has already been done. Now for the rest of us, maybe we know this, but we just have disconnected it from the works of our hands on a regular basis. Would you begin to give the people in this room a sense of purpose in their task? Give parents in this room a sense of joy that as they raise up children and do the hard work of investing and discipling babies and children, they're doing the the work that reflects the character and nature of their creator. Give the workers in this room that serve in difficult tasks, especially those maybe they think that their work is demeaning or it's, it's not really honorable. Would you begin to show them? You're, you, they're doing the thing that reflects the servant nature of our God. As they get their hands dirty, they're testifying to a God who came to be with us and for us in the season to get his hands dirty to demonstrate his great love for us. There's some in this room, maybe we've just not trusted in the finished work of Jesus and it's clouding our ability to rest and clouding our ability to work. Would you begin to show us that what's been done for us is enough? 
It's sufficient. We can rest now in it and serve faithfully as a result of it. Jesus, do this for your glory. And it's in your name that we ask it. Amen.